0: The title of our sermon this afternoon is Spreading Joy. And this is the second sermon that we have on the subject of Christian joy. If you remember this morning, we considered the topic of Christian joy as it is in itself. We dealt with answering some important questions What is joy? What's the basis of joy? How can I be joyful? What do I need to do? And we likened our study of Christian joy to a lantern. I said that we divide the study into three sections. First, the essence of joy, and I said this was like the flame of the lantern, if you remember. Second, the source of joy, and this was like the fuel that lights it. And then third, the attainment of joy, and this was the warm glow that we feel from it, that we experience. I gave you this proposition that I attempted to prove from the scriptures. Here's what I said. Here's what I tried to prove to you from various texts. Christian joy or spiritual joy, is a long-term gladness based on the proven genuineness of our faith, the person and work of Christ, and the collective progress of the church. And we get it through an understanding of the truth that we apply by the Holy Spirit and the putting off of wrong thoughts and the putting on of right thoughts. I proved to you from John 16 that joy is the long-term emotional effect that the application of good news has on the Christian it's long term because Jesus said that no one will be able to take it away from you right it's an emotional effect because Jesus contrasted it in that text with weeping lamenting and sorrow and those are all emotions so if joy is the opposite of grief and sorrow then very clearly it has an emotional dimension right And I said that joy is the application of good news because Jesus talks about the woman who forgets her anguish when the child is born into the world. So joy is the application of good news when our hopes become reality. Therefore, from John 16, we can rightly say that Christian joy is the long-term emotional effect that the application of good news has on the Christian. And this is the joy that we're after. I made two important qualifications, if you remember. First, I said that there is such a thing as a temporary joy, and that's like the rocky soil. It's a very surface level soil, it doesn't take deep root. And if we're going to avoid a temporary joy, then we need to make sure that the gospel takes deep root in the soil of our hearts. And the second qualification that I made is that sometimes it's not appropriate to rejoice. Sometimes that's not appropriate. James says, let your joy be turned into gloom. And of course, he's speaking with uh, with respect to sin, okay? But even with things that aren't sinful, we remember that Jesus wept. He wept at the death of Lazarus. So sometimes it's okay to weep. Sometimes it's okay to be sad. What we're after, what we're after is a long-term joy that transcends our sorrows, a long-term joy that exists alongside our sorrows. And where does this kind of joy come from? What's its source? This was like the oil or the fuel for the lantern. And it was our second point. What's the source of joy? We proved from 1 Peter 1 and some other texts that Christian joy finds its source in three primary areas. First, true joy, Christian joy, finds its basis in the proven genuineness of our faith. Only if our faith is proved to be true through various kinds of trials are we gonna be able to rejoice in the work that God is doing in us, right? The second pillar of our joy is the person and work of Christ. After Peter talked about the proven genuineness of our faith, he said that we rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory because of Christ, because of him whom we have not seen. And then thirdly, we saw from a bunch of texts in the New Testament that Christian joy is in part based on our perceived collective progress in the faith. In other words, part of our joy comes from the advancement of Christ's kingdom. John said, I have no greater joy than this to hear of my children walking in the truth. And that's a bold statement. And Paul makes a similar claim. He says, for who is our hope or joy or crown of exaltation? Is it not even you? So our Christian joy grows when we hear that the kingdom of Christ is being advanced. And our Christian joy here, brothers and sisters, our Christian joy here grows when we see one another walking in faithfulness, walking in the truth, growing qualitatively. And yes, growing quantitatively, seeing the church grow quantitatively in number. So, therefore, from 1 Peter 1 and some other texts, we proved that Christian joy is based on the proven genuineness of our faith, the person and work of Christ, and our collective progress in the faith. And this last question that we answered was, how can we get it? How can I get this joy? What do I need to do? And I said that this was like experiencing the warm glow of the lantern. How can I have this joy that we're talking about? What do I need to do to get it? And our main point here was that if you're going to get Christian joy, if you're going to get it, if you're going to acquire it, then you need to inform your understanding from reading the word. You need to put off wrong thoughts and put on right thoughts. And what I mean by that is you need to get your joy off of temporal things that change and you need to place all of your affections, all of your joy, all of your hope in eternal things and heavenly things. And we prove this because in our main text, Peter says that we haven't seen Christ. We haven't seen him. And we haven't seen our salvation. Our salvation will be revealed in the last time. So someone might ask Peter, how can I rejoice in something that I haven't seen, right? And he answers that question. He says, look to the prophets. In other words, read the scripture. So if we're gonna get joy, we need to read the Bible. We need to read the Bible. There's a direct relationship. Here was our proposition. There's a direct relationship between studying the Bible and being joyful. If you want to be joyful, read the scriptures, study them. And then what? You need to apply the scriptures. It's not enough to know them, but you need to apply them. And you apply them by the Holy Spirit in putting off wrong thoughts and putting on right thoughts. You get your mind off the things of the earth and you set your mind on things above. As Christ said, do not store up your up for yourselves treasures on earth. But where should, we, where should we store our treasures? Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So if you're gonna get Christian joy, if you're gonna feel that warm glow from the lantern, read the Bible. Study the Bible, inform your understanding, and then put off wrong thoughts. Get your ultimate joy. In other words, get your ultimate joy away from the things that change and place your ultimate joy in heavenly things. Place your ultimate joy in heavenly things. So I hope you've seen from the scriptures what joy is, where it comes from, and how you can get it. And I trust that you've seen the importance of studying the Bible and putting on, um, getting your mind on things above rather than things on the earth, rather than putting your mind on things that grow wings and fly away. Now, with that said, what is the subject that we're considering here this afternoon? When I was asked to preach two sermons for today, um, I, I tried to think about what would be most encouraging to you in our season, in our current season. And I thought, maybe a sermon on joy or contentment. So I settled on joy because I thought that it would be edifying to the body. Let's say, um, let's, say, let's say Cornerstone, let's say our church was a, uh, an observatory, you know, the building that has a, um, a telescope, a big telescope coming out of it. All our church members, they're like the staff that runs this place. And no matter who we are, no matter what position that we have in this observatory, all of us have the opportunity and all of us have the responsibility to look through the telescope and mark what we see. And the looking glass works just fine. What are we looking at? We're looking at Christ, right? In this illustration, Christ is like the bright stars in the planets, he's like the heavens that we can see, the glory of the heavens. So the telescope works just fine, we can see Christ well enough. But there are some things that happen in this observatory that can distract us from the main purpose looking through the telescope. Imagine, a, imagine with me for a second, you're a staff person in this observatory and um, a school field trip comes in With a bunch of elementary schoolers, and the kids, they get off the bus and then they make a big mess. They make a a mess of the place. As the staff, we have a responsibility to clean it up. You have to clean it up. We can't just leave it a wreck. Listen, listen to me. I don't want any of you getting so preoccupied with cleaning up the mess that you forget to look through the telescope. You catch my drift? You've got a responsibility to do both. I'm not pitting them against each other, okay? You've gotta clean up the mess, you have to do it. But you have to take joy in Christ too. If you get preoccupied, if you get too preoccupied with the mess that these kids have created, then you may forget the feeling that you get when you look through that telescope. I'm talking about feelings because we're talking about joy. You may forget the feeling of wonder and beauty and humility. You see the expanse of the heavens and yourself. And you may forget the joy that you feel when you look that telescope. You see what I'm saying? I'm not necessarily talking about August 6th, although I am. That was a mess that's gonna take a, lot, uh, a long time. And quite frankly, it's gonna take a lot of preaching and leadership from our elders to help us move forward from it. We gotta clean up the mess. But I'm also talking about the other messes in our life. And I, I chose the topic of Christian joy because you need to know for yourself what God's provision is for you so that you can rejoice in the midst of hardship understand? So that was this morning. What I want to do in the remainder of our time this afternoon is I want to train you, if I can be bold enough to speak in that way, I want to train you to spread joy. I want to train you to spread joy to one another. It's not enough to look out for your own skin and know for yourself how to be joyful. I want our body to be edified, not just um, by this sermon on joy, but by the organic growth that you experience when you edify one another. Does that make sense? So I want to preach on how you can come alongside your brother and give him the counsel and the prayer that he needs to rejoice. That's what I want to do in this, in this sermon. And that's why I've entitled it Spreading Joy. This morning was sowing joy because we were talking about how we can acquire joy for ourselves. And we, we don't want to be like the guy who has a plank in our own eye coming to his brother with a speck in his. We need to get the plank out of our own eye so that we can see. That's why we talked about sowing joy in ourselves, acquiring joy and attaining joy in ourselves, but. Um, Now I wanna spend some time talking about how we can spread it, how we can counsel one another when we're grieving, when we're suffering, when we're going through hardship. So let's uh, let's spend some time talking about how we can counsel one another in Christ so that we can experience the fullness of joy. And to do that, I wanna continue our illustration of the lantern. If you don't mind me extending the metaphor even further, I wanna continue our illustration of the lantern. This morning we talked about the flame of the lantern, we talked about the fuel for the lantern, we talked about the warm glow that we feel. Now I wanna continue that illustration when talking about how we counsel one another to joy. So we're gonna split this topic up into two main points. First, negatively, what we shouldn't do, and then positively, what we should do. First, how to foul up comforting others. And second, how to comfort the downcast. And following up Christian counseling with respect to the subject of joy, if I can continue our illustration, that's like knocking over the lantern and burning down the barn. I know that's a little bit dramatic, but hopefully it'll be a helpful reminder of how you should always be cautious when you're counseling others with respect to experiencing Christian joy. You always need to be cautious when you're counseling others when they're suffering. Otherwise, you can tip over the lantern, it'll burn down the barn. And the second piece that we're gonna talk about is how to comfort the downcast. And this is, like, um, this is like troubleshooting someone else's lantern so that you can help them get it lit. Okay, so our first point, how to foul up comforting others. I have to confess, and please forgive me, I don't have the time, nor do I have the, the ability to treat of this issue comprehensively. As I've studied the scriptures, I found that there is a mountain of texts that deal with how we're supposed to speak with one another. So I decided at the outset that in this case, I'd rather leave some stuff unsaid than deal with everything superficially. So don't expect me to give you a comprehensive list of the ways that you can foul up comforting, okay? Instead, I'd rather explain a couple of things that we should be cautious of. And I'll hit on three main things. Three things that you should avoid when counseling someone with the goal of spreading joy. Here's what you should avoid. Avoid a careless attitude. These are scriptural points that I'm gonna give you, okay? I'm gonna prove these things. One, avoid a careless attitude. Two, avoid rebuking the innocent. And three, avoid comforting with inappropriate remedies. Avoid a careless attitude. Avoid rebuking the innocent. Avoid comforting with inappropriate remedies. First, the first thing that'll cause the lantern to fall over and burn down the barn is a careless attitude. Turn to the book of Proverbs and look at chapter 18, Proverbs 18. Jesus Christ speaks tenderly and he speaks gently to his sheep with compassion. He said to his disciples at one point, I find this amazing of how gentle Jesus was. He said to his disciples, don't be afraid little flock for your father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. What compassion, what gentleness coming from the mouth of Christ. He speaks to us with pity and with gentleness. Why does he do that? Look at Proverbs 18 verse 21. Verse 21, death and life, are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruit. You see that word power? In the Bible, the word for power is used to talk about our ability to do something. If you're a worm or an ant or something like that, you have very little power because you don't have the ability to do very much at all. But God, at the very opposite end of the spectrum, God has all power because nothing is impossible for him. God is able because God is powerful. And God is powerful because God is able. This proverb here is teaching us that the tongue itself has power. What is the tongue able to do? The tongue can bring life and the tongue can also bring death. And if you recognize the power of the tongue, you'll be able to control the consequences of the way you use it. That's what this proverb is teaching when it says that, um, when it, when it says that the one who loves it eats of its fruit. It's talking about the one who understands what it is able to do. He can control the consequences of the usage of his tongue. What do you think the outcome is of forgetting the power of the tongue? Think about it. How will someone speak if they're completely unaware of the ability that the tongue has? If someone has an unbridled tongue, it's because they don't understand or recognize the power of speech. James says that that little instrument in your mouth, it can set a whole forest on fire, and even um, that it can light the flames of hell. That's just how powerful the tongue is. And look down at verse 14 of, of Proverbs 18, the same chapter. What does it say? The spirit of a man can endure his sickness, but as for a broken spirit, who can bear it? how terrifying it is that each of us is born with a weapon behind our teeth. And this weapon can be used to tear down, destroy, kill, and break someone's spirit. And don't get me wrong, okay? I'm not, I'm not trying to give room to the self-pitying person that crumbles and withers because you told them that they need to read their Bible. Okay? I'm not, I'm not talking about that person. But Proverbs, Proverbs also says a lot about the person who can't take a rebuke So this isn't an excuse when we're talking about how how the tongue has the power of life and death. This isn't isn't an excuse for someone to be self-pitying or to be a victim, to play the victim. People who can't take a rebuke, according to Proverbs, are fools. But at the same time, how can we be fair to this text if we don't admit that our words themselves have the power of death? Our words have the power of death, brothers. I'm warning you. I'm warning you. That's what I'm doing right now. And I'm speaking especially, not to the young, but to the old. I'm warning everyone. Yes, everyone who hears, for everyone whose ears feel my words fall upon them, I'm speaking to you. I'm warning everyone, but I'm especially warning those who are older. You're more tempted than the young person is to speak dismissively. You've seen a lot. You've been broken many times. It's easy to be dismissive. It's easy to speak rashly. It's easy to speak without thinking and i'll um, and i I'll, I'll rely on the learning of another to make these claims okay I'll rely on a trustworthy Puritan. He wrote a book for the elderly. His name is Richard Steele. He wrote a discourse concerning old age. Here's what he says: A second folly incident to old age is talkativeness that is an exceeding proneness to speak much. He goes on about the power of the tongue and its abuse he says. How unruly is this little member, in so much as the Apostle James calls the tongue a world of iniquity. The hand is not called a world of iniquity, for it cannot reach very far. But with the tongue, we can walk over the whole world, and by its venom can hurt even all mankind. Aged people whose eyes and ears, whose hands and feet are much decayed and disabled, are apt to make the greater use of their tongues." And whereas the noblest and best subject of discourse is the ever-blessed God, his attributes, word, and works, too few of the elderly speak of these things. But the ordinary theme of their speech is gossip concerning other folks and concerning themselves. And here you may find in their tongues the perpetual motion. About others, their tongue travels round about, and few of their neighbors escape the scourge of it. It is their delight to be judging, censuring, and condemning to all mankind." I don't want you to go away from here thinking that I decided to pick on old people, okay? <laughs> Richard said it, not me. But in all seriousness, I want you to be aware of the power of your words. Young people and old people, but old people especially. Those of you who are more advanced in age. And it's not, it's not that I want you to, it's that God does. Jesus said that we'll be judged for every idle word that we speak. And perhaps, if we considered the power of the tongue, we would be less careless in its use. How sad it is when a careless word is the messenger of death to a broken spirit. So, be careful with your words. Be careful with your words. Your words have the power of life and death. That's my first caution to you. Avoid a careless attitude. My second caution to you in counseling others, like a warning sign saying, don't knock over the lantern, it'll burn down the barn. My second warning about how to not foul counseling others is to avoid rebuking the innocent. Turn in your Bibles to the book of Job and look at chapter one. The book of Job is instructive not only for those who are going through difficulty. This book is also full of wisdom for those who want to know how to comfort others. Look at Job chapter one in verse eight. Verse eight. It reads, The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. If you've ever read through Job, you know what was the main contention between him and his friends. After he spoke up about how sad he was, what did they start doing? They started accusing him. They started accusing him of hidden sin. They said, Is it because of your reverence, Job, that he reproves you? Is not your wickedness great and your iniquities without end? In other words, throughout the whole dialogue between Job and his friends, the friends are trying to attribute some sin to Job because they're assuming that what he's going through, they're assuming that his hardship is because God's judgment is being poured out on him. But what does God say in this verse? God tells Satan that Job is upright and innocent. Job's friends don't know that. So they begin accusing him and this is what i'm warning you against this will burn down the barn when you're seeking to comfort the downcast don't rebuke the innocent in other words don't try to associate their troubles with god's judgment today is not judgment day the last day is judgment day and each person will give an account of himself to god and just because you're going through difficulties doesn't necessarily mean that god is pouring out judgment upon you You don't know why God may be allowing something to happen to someone. Don't put yourself on God's throne. Don't try to peek behind the curtain of God's providence and tell someone why they're going through what they're going through. The fact is, you don't know. And at the end of the book, after God rebukes Job for the way that he ends up responding to his suffering, God actually upholds Job's innocence. And he says to Eliphaz, my wrath is kindled against you and against your two friends because you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. Job called his friends sorry comforters. And God agrees with Job on that point. You're a sorry comforter when you rebuke those who are really innocent. The book of Proverbs says there is one who speaks rashly like the thrusts of a sword, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. You wanna heal others? Do you wanna see them be joyful? Then don't follow in the footsteps of Job's friends. Don't be a bad comforter. Don't let your speech be rash like the thrusts of the sword. So we've proven that we should avoid a careless attitude because in our tongue, we have the power of life and death. And we've proven that we should not rebuke the innocent. These are things that we should avoid when we're trying to counsel a brother to be joyful. Our third point is that we should always avoid comforting others with inappropriate remedies. What do I mean? I mean, it's never the answer to give someone an unbiblical hope. That's what I mean. If you're trying to comfort someone, you have to do it according to the truth False friends give false comforts. This might seem obvious to us, but don't take me the wrong way. I'm not really talking to outsiders. I'm talking to you, church. Even if this advice seems obvious to you, I'm speaking to you. I'm speaking to Cornerstone. I'm speaking to our church. Don't rely on false premises to give comfort to others. We need to avoid applying the wrong antidote to the poison of despondency or the poison of sorrow. If you're a doctor and you give someone when they're supposed to get philidocaine, you're a bad doctor. I made those things up. I, I, I don't know. I made those things up. But you know what I'm talking about. Use the right prescription for the right illness. That's what I'm saying. Avoid false hope when counseling others. Turn back to the book of Proverbs and flip to chapter 25. Let's see what the Bible has to say about this. And chapter 25 is full of practical wisdom on how we should speak to others. So I want to look at a few of the verses here and make some practical application, okay? Let's look first at verse 11. Proverbs 25, verse 11. Like apples of gold in settings of silver is a word spoken in right circumstances. Like an earring of gold and an ornament of fine gold is a wise reprover to a listening ear. Like the cold of snow in the time of harvest is a faithful messenger to those who send him for he refreshes the soul of his masters. These three verses, they communicate a couple things. Very clearly, we can see in verse 11 that our words need to be spoken in right circumstances. Our words need to be spoken suitable to the circumstances that someone is in. In other words, you shouldn't say peace, peace when there is no Peace. And you also shouldn't say danger, danger, when there is no danger, right? That's what we just talked about, rebuking the innocent. Wisdom in edifying others consists in large part in your ability by the Holy Spirit to apply the Bible accurately. I'll say it again. Wisdom consists in your ability to apply the Bible accurately. Apples of gold in settings of silver. Let your words be timely. Let your words be accurately applied. Let your words be suitable to the circumstance. And what will be the result? How will they take it? By God's grace, verse 12. Like an earring of gold and an ornament of fine gold, it's a wise reprover to a listening ear. They'll take it well. And not only will they take it well, but so will your master who sent you to speak. That's verse 13. So what's the point? Let your words be appropriate. Let them be fitting. One inference from this is that we shouldn't give someone an unbiblical hope. I'm trying to tell you just what I told you earlier today. Don't place your joy on the things on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. In the same way, for example, if someone's just been diagnosed with some kind of medical problem, it's not necessarily good advice to say, it'll get better. That's not an apple of gold in a setting of silver. That's not a suitable word. That's not wisdom. Quite honestly, that's just your hopeful assumption. And it's not necessarily the most comforting thing. What's comforting is the biblical remedy for someone who's depressed because of their health. That's what's comforting. And there is a biblical message of joy and hope for that person, but it's not a dismissal of the problem. That's not biblical hope, dismissing the problem. Look at verse 20. Verse 20. I want you to take this to heart. Verse 20. Like one who takes off a garment on a cold day or like vinegar on soda is he who sings songs to a troubled heart. At first blush, you might think it's a good idea to sing songs to a troubled heart. But vinegar and soda, I don't know how soda was used in biblical times, but in my mind, if you mix Soda and vinegar together, they're not gonna taste very good. <laughs> okay, some, some commentators, they say that um, when you mix vinegar and soda, it creates a fizzly, um, un- unpleasing reaction. In other words, it's not a good thing to mix vinegar and soda. They, they react together in an unpleasant way. And also, you need to wear a garment on a cold day. You need to wear a garment on a cold day. So in the same way, treating someone's sorrow with a lighthearted optimism can feel to them like you're removing their outer garment on a cold day. You see what I'm saying? That's not comfortable. It certainly isn't helpful. That person doesn't need a lighthearted optimism. What do they need? They need God's word. They need good news. Look at verse 25. Like cold water to a weary soul, so is good news from a distant land. If you want your brother to be joyful, And if you want to be used by God to bring timely and appropriate joy, then apply the Bible with wisdom that's suitable for the circumstance. That's what you have to do. So we've discussed the three ways that you can knock over the lantern and burn down the barn. Make sure that you avoid a careless attitude. The tongue has the power of life and death. Avoid rebuking the innocent. There is a man who speaks rashly like the thrusts of the sword. and There is no healing in his words. And lastly, avoid comforting others with inappropriate remedies you need to speak biblical truth that's appropriate for the circumstance, and that takes wisdom. And when I say that lighthearted optimism isn't necessarily the most comforting thing for a person, what I'm talking about is an unbiblical optimism, an optimism that may not necessarily align with reality. Someone, for example, I'm just giving you an example of the kind of thing that I'm talking about. It's good to be optimistic, but what I'm talking about is someone, for example, who's been diagnosed with terminal cancer. It'll be fine. That's an extreme example, okay? But I'm trying to give you an idea of what I'm, what I'm saying. Apply biblical wisdom fittingly to their circumstance. That's what you need to do. That's what they need to hear. They need to hear biblical wisdom. They need to place their joy in heavenly things, not in, in temporal things. Job's health was taken away. And that's a fact. His health was taken away. Listen to me. Maybe you've been foolish. Have you ever spoken an untimely word to someone? Have you ever seen the truth of Proverbs 18 play out in your life? And you find that your words really did have the power of death? Look at your life. Look at your life. And can you honestly say that you've always been gentle or wise? Or have you been a fool? Are you even still suffering the consequences of your foolish and prideful speech? Do you know what you deserve? Jesus says that by a man's words, he'll be condemned. Those are his words. That's the Bible. That's what Jesus says. So what do you deserve for your idle words? Condemnation. You deserve condemnation. Do you believe that? What's the solution? My second point in this sermon is about how we're gonna counsel others. Is that the solution? Is that how you can make up for your wrongs by doing better now? No. Your sins of thoughtless and inappropriate speech are so serious that the only way they can be covered is by the substitutionary blood of Jesus Christ, the son of God. Trust in him. He'll forgive and he'll touch a burning coal against your lips and you'll be free. You'll be forgiven. So our second point is more so about how we can serve our brother out of love for him and out of thankfulness to God rather than an attempt to atone for our foolish words that we've said in the past. So how do we love our brother in this way? How can I come alongside and comfort the brokenhearted? Point two, how to comfort the downcast. And this is like seeing our friend's lantern that isn't quite working and troubleshooting it. My exhortation to you is simple and it relies much on what's already been said. Here it is. Weep with those who weep. Listen before speaking. Pray for wisdom. Apply the Bible in gentleness. Weep with those who weep. Listen before speaking. Pray for wisdom. Apply the Bible in gentleness. It's important that you recognize at the outset a qualification that I made in our first sermon this morning. It's okay to be sorrowful in the Christian walk. There is such a thing as a sinful sorrow, like Judas who hung himself. But in many cases, sorrow is completely legitimate. Let's look at an example from the Bible. Turn to Job chapter 1. Let's examine the case of a man who suffered innocently and responded well. And I'll be quoting other texts as we're here, but this will be the main text that we work from as we talk about how we should counsel others. Job 1, and beginning at verse 1. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless, upright, fearing God, and turning away from evil. You see that? The Bible recognizes Job's innocence, not his perfection, because he had to turn away from evil, so he was a sinful man. But the point of Job is about the relationship between suffering and obedience. And the Bible makes very clear that Job's suffering wasn't a result of his sin, he was innocent and upright. Keep reading, seven sons and three daughters were born to him. His possessions also were 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and very many servants. And that man was the greatest of all men in the East. You can tell that Job probably lived in what's called the patriarchal age during the lives of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob because his wealth is measured by his livestock. And as we'll see, the heads of houses were the instituted priesthood back then, fathers. Fathers were priests who offered sacrifices for their families. Keep reading. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. When the days of feasting had completed their cycle, Job would send and consecrate them, rising up early in the morning and offering burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, perhaps my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus, Job did continually. So Job is innocent. He's innocent with respect to his personal walk and that he was blameless and upright, turning away from evil. And he's blameless with respect to his priestly role. That's the point of this first section. Job is innocent. Let's see what God has to say about Job before the heavenly council. Look at verse six. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, from where do you come? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, from roaming about on the earth and walking about on it. The Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. You see how God's opinion of Job is in alignment with reality? The Bible said earlier, just as a matter of fact, that Job was an innocent man and God states this directly in the heavenly council before Satan and all the sons of God. The Lord says, Job is blameless. This character, Satan, his name means accuser. And that's especially true here. In this book, Satan lives up to his name. And his accusation is not only against Job, but it's a direct insult to God as well. Let's continue, verse nine. Then Satan answered the Lord, does Job fear God for nothing? You see how Satan's accusation is against both Job and the Lord? He's basically saying that God isn't worthy of being feared. Satan says the only reason that Job fears you is because of everything that you've given him, not because you're actually worthy of worship, you see? Verse 10, have you not made a hedge about him and his house and all that he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But put forth your hand now and touch all that he has. He will surely curse you to your face. So here we have Satan standing before all the angels of heaven and he's proudly rebelling against God. He's attacking God's character. He's attacking God's authority. He's attacking God's worthiness to be worshiped. And he's doing it before the rest of the heavenly host. So how does God respond? Verse 12, then the Lord said to Satan, behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not put forth your hand on him. So Satan departed from the presence of the Lord. The ultimate reason for Job's suffering has nothing to do with his integrity. In fact, God allows Job to suffer specifically to test Job and prove the genuineness of his faith because God knows that Job's fidelity is to him. The Lord knows that Job isn't, uh, hasn't been bribed. Job doesn't worship just to get a bunch of stuff God has seen Job's integrity. So what does his suffering look like? Here's the test. Here's the test of his faith, beginning at verse 13. Let's just read through it. Now on the day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them and the Sabians attacked and took them. They also slew the servants with the edge of the sword and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, the fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. And I alone have escaped to tell you while he was still speaking. Another also came and said, the Chaldeans formed three bands and made a raid on the camels and took them and slew the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you while he was still speaking. Another also came and said, your sons and your daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came from across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house and it fell on the young people. They died and I alone have escaped to tell you. So what did Job lose? He lost his wealth. He lost his wealth in three waves all at the same time. Any one of these events would have been devastating to his financial position. But three of these waves happened simultaneously so that he didn't have anything left. And immediately, without even being able to have a moment to comprehend the news of losing his whole life's work, another servant comes and tells him that all of his children are dead. So how does a believing man respond? What does Job do? Verse 20. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and he fell to the ground and worshiped. He said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord through all this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. The same thing happens again. Satan makes another accusation against Job, and it's meant to undermine God's glory and authority. And God, in his sovereignty, he allows Satan to to touch Job's health. So Job's possessions, family, and health are taken away. The main point of Job is to show us that it takes wisdom, listen to me, it takes wisdom to counsel others when they're suffering. And part of wisdom consists in our recognition that we we don't always know why God does what he does. God never reveals to Job or his friends why Job suffered. They never learn about the heavenly counsel. They never learn about this dialogue with Satan. And they don't need to know. They need to trust. They don't need to know. They need to trust. This, this is the kind of humility that we need to adopt when we're coming alongside our s- sorrowful brother. And this is the practical point that I want to make to you. When someone is suffering, here's what we need to do. Weep with those who weep, listen before speaking, pray for wisdom and apply the Bible in gentleness. Job's friends, at least in this section, they have this attitude. Read beginning in Job 2 verse 11. Now when Job's three friends heard of all this adversity that had come upon them, They came each one from his own place, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite, and they made an appointment together to come to sympathize with him and comfort him. Later on, they don't do a very good job of sympathizing, and um, they're really bad comforters. But here, what they do is very sympathetic and comforting to Job. Verse 12, when they lifted up their eyes at a distance and did not recognize him, they raised their voices and wept and each of them tore his robe and threw dust over their heads toward the sky. You see how they're weeping with those who weep? That's a biblical imperative for us in Romans 12. We'll see it when we come to it in um, Pastor Mark's preaching for our morning services. We're called to do what Job's friends are doing here. They're weeping with their friend. They're fellowshipping in his suffering. Keep reading verse 13. Then they sat down on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights with no one speaking a word to him, for they saw that his pain was very great. You see how at first they're listening? Later on, they're very bad listeners, but here, they did a good thing. Proverbs 18 says that a fool does not delight in understanding, but only in revealing his own mind. Have you ever been counseled by somebody like that? Somebody who has no delight in understanding, but only in revealing their own mind? It doesn't feel good. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Don't be a fool. Listen when your brother is suffering. He who gives an answer before he hears, it is folly and shame to him. Don't judge or give counsel too early. That's what I'm saying. Don't judge or give counsel too early. Have a listening ear. And if I may, I'd like to add two more steps to this piece that we don't necessarily see right here. So, um, and we can ascertain them from other texts in the Bible and we can add them right here. We've seen that we should weep with those who weep and that we should have a listening ear. But we also see in Job that wisdom is the whole point of the book. It takes wisdom to counsel others. And where does wisdom come from? Job 28 says that man does not know wisdom's value, nor is it found in the land of the living. In other words, we don't have wisdom in and of ourselves, but God understands its way and he knows its place. So wisdom comes from God. So you should pray for wisdom. Don't doubt God. He gives wisdom generously. He's not going to address you with disapproval if you come to him asking for wisdom. So come to him and don't doubt. He'll give you the wisdom that you need to counsel your brother. With that said, the very last thing that you need is to gently apply the Bible. We've seen that there is someone who speaks rashly like the thrusts of the sword, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Refresh your brother. Humbly come to your brother. If he needs correction in his sorrow, correct him, but do so from the Bible and not your own opinion. And do it after you've wept, listened, and prayed for wisdom. I say your correction should be gentle, because Paul, he says in one place, Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any spiritual trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself, so that you too will not be tempted. And again, in another place, he says, But we proved to be gentle among you, as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. That's how you should be, gentle. Be gentle in your correction. So church, don't burn down the barn because you carelessly tipped over the lantern. Avoid a careless attitude. Words have the power of life and death. Avoid rebuking the innocent like Job's worthless friends who linked his suffering with his sin. Avoid comforting with inappropriate remedies. Apply the right medicine to the right malady like apples of gold and settings of silver. And if you want to counsel one another to have fullness of joy during suffering, weep with those who weep. Listen before speaking pray for wisdom, and apply the Bible in a spirit of gentleness. All this, not because you want to impart all of your heavenly glorious wisdom of your own opinions, but because you love your church, you love your God, and you want to serve. All glory be to the one who is worthy to be served in the midst of suffering, to him who gives and takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Let's pray. Oh God, we bless your name. Everything that we have is a gift from you. Thank you for refraining from giving us things that would not be for our benefit. Thank you for giving us things that are for our benefit. Thank you for taking away things when we need to have things taken away. Thank you for providentially governing all of the affairs of our life in love for us and in wisdom, directing the course of our existence. We are so grateful to you. We know that you do all things in love and you have a good purpose in everything that you work together work all things after the counsel of your will. Your will is best. We submit our wills to you. In Christ's name, amen. Hello, and thanks for listening. My name is Mark Brashear, and I have the blessed privilege of serving with the saints at Cornerstone Church near Orlando, Florida. We're so grateful that you've connected with us through the sermon that you've just heard. For more information, visit us at cornerstoneorlando.org. Or better yet, come and see us on the Lord's Day at 3370 Snow Hill Road in Oviedo, Florida. We're just east of Orlando and about 15 minutes from the campus at UCF. It would be a joy to have you worship with us.